our study through the book of Genesis, and we'll continue on from here. Some people seem to view God as a kindly old man who sits in heaven and frets most of the day. Their God is a loving father with a generous, kind heart. He's genuinely pleased when someone chooses him as Savior. He's genuinely pleased when his children decide to obey him. But when God looks down on this vile world and sees sin and the harsh realities of fallen humanity, he blushes with embarrassment. He turns away, shaking his head in disappointed disbelief and quiet resignation. He's anxious. He's an anxious God who cannot in his wildest imagination even conceive of sin, let alone do anything about it or with it, heaven forbid. He's a God dedicated to holy things. Well, don't bring such a view of God to the book of Genesis because he will explode on impact. Maybe I should say, bring such a God to the book of Genesis and let him explode on impact because it's an idol. It's not the true God. The God we find revealed in the pages of Genesis is a God who rules heaven and earth and all the affairs of mankind, good and evil. He is a God big enough and wise enough to providentially steer the actions and the decisions of evil people to accomplish his divine purposes. Even those actions that are in rebellion against his purposes. As we return to our study of Genesis this morning, we encounter again the story of God's chosen family, the children of Israel. It is an account plastered with the muck of human depravity. It is an account of parental favoritism, of sibling rivalry, of deception, manipulation, deceit. It is an account of lying and jealousy, of envy, of rape, and of murder. This is one ugly, depraved, sensual, messed up family. The classic description of fallen humanity in Romans chapter 1 proves a chillingly fitting description of this home that God has chosen. Think about what we have studied in the life of this family and compare it with these words from Romans 1. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This, to some degree, is Israel's family. And where is God in it all? Is he sitting on his hands? Is he turning away his face in embarrassment? Is he running away in despair, saying, what have I done? No, God is right in the middle of everything. He is sovereignly, patiently, faithfully steering Jacob's family to fulfill his ultimate purposes, even as they rebel against him. Yes, God is dedicated to holy things but not in the way that some people think. God not only sees this family's sin, he does something with it. And he does something with it so that he might slowly, progressively do something about it. 
This is a story of remarkable providential transformation. It is a story in which God uses the sinful rebellion of people to effect a transformation of their own hearts. So as we come to Genesis 37, we enter the home stretch of this great book. We've studied the life of Abraham and Sarah. And think with it again, think with me again about the depravity that we find in these stories. And yet the work of God leading these people to a place of faith, of robust and strong faith. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and his wives. From here to the end, Genesis takes up now the life of the fourth and final patriarch, Joseph. Now before we enter this home stretch, let's get our bearings again in Genesis. We remember here that in the original text there is no outlining. There are no chapter or verse divisions. There's no outline. There's no footnotes. There's no highlights. Those who read this text originally would just look at one letter after another. As a matter of fact, there were no spaces. It was just letters on a page, and you had to learn as you read to decipher where the divisions were. Now, in our uh, modern time, perhaps it is a mark of our laziness, but thankfully there are these things of outlining and directional notes and headings and chapter divisions and the like. But in the original text, that's not there. And what was one of the key ways of outlining the book of Genesis? If you remember this discussion, I'll show you this here visually. If you look at this yellow col column on this overhead, we had this Hebrew word, toledoth. And through the book of Genesis, we've come to these various markers that give us the major divisions of the book of Genesis. So you see then today that we come to this tenth and final use of the word toledoth at 37 and verse 2, remembering that 37.1 actually goes more with what precedes. It was a poor uh, chapter division there at 37.1 and 2. So at 37.2, we come to the tenth and final toledoth, this word that is translated variously as the account of or the generations of, it marks off these major divisions. Now roughly tied to these ten major divisions, the book moves back and forth from narrative to genealogy. You can see that here. A narrative to genealogy, back and forth, very consistently. Now these, this pattern, back and forth, does not always match perfectly the ten Toledoth markers, but within those markers we see this pattern alongside the other. So here, is our here are our divisions. There are these transitional places which sometimes cause us some difficulty to find them in the text, to find these markers in the text. But here are the main markers. We come to the last one here and we've gone from narrative to genealogy all the way through until we come now to the final concluding narrative of the book of Genesis. So you see here visually we have genuinely hit the home stretch. We're here to the end and to the last narrative. It is the most lengthy narrative. In many ways, it is the most enjoyable. It reads like a very well-written novel, but it is not fictional. It is genuine history, and it is the history of God's people. With the genealogy concept, we know as we look at the historical concept here of these various individuals through time, we're looking at here primarily at the end of the four patriarchs of Abraham and Jacob, and I have these in parentheses here because the way that the Toledoth marker leads off, it is, these, are, this is the, these are the generations of Terah, 
which really introduces the Abraham narrative. These are the generations of uh, Isaac, which introduces really the Jacob narrative. And now we read in 37.2, these are the generations of, or this is the account of, however you would translate it, Jacob, and really it is the narrative of Joseph. So we have within this range the four patriarchs of Israel. But here with this historical idea, it is clear these are people of faith, growing in their faith, people that God has chosen, that God is nurturing and developing. On this other side, this genealogical uh, emphasis of Genesis is very important and it draws us back to that original prophecy in chapter 3 and verse 15 where God lays out there two lines of people he chooses a family line and that family line as is clearly displayed for us here in this graphic as it plays out in the book of Genesis passes through Adam through Seth through Noah, through Shem, through Terah, through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, and through Joseph. And in the, uh, Joseph, and with Joseph and his brothers, we have the 12 tribes of Israel, and we have redemption history kind of meshes out there at the end and develops uh, toward the person of Jesus Christ. But there are the people of God whom he has chosen and there are the people of the serpent whom God has not chosen and who live a life of rebellion against him, God, and against the people of God, the seed of the woman. So that are the, those are the two side-by-side -side, uh, coupling themes of this book, the genealogies and the narratives. The people of God chosen out from the world, but those people being, if I can say it very frankly, a major project for God. They are not perfect people that land out of heaven in a spaceship. They are people who are very tainted with sin. Now they are not Christians. They are not people who are on this side of the cross with the same ministry of the indwelling Spirit of God that we have. But they are people who do walk in faith. And we find in their struggle so much help for us in our time. So in these chapters, we consider the faith now, the journey of Joseph. And it is important for us as we start out here, again, getting our bearings, we'll look at the life, or, or the family rather, of Jacob. Jacob and his four wives. We have displayed here for us, just to get a, a reminder here, get a sense of where we are with this family, because this family is uh, very much at the heart of all of the narratives that we look at from here to the end of the book. Do you remember Leah having the uh, six sons. Dinah is mentioned. There is a uh, silence really in the text of Scripture as to if she is the only daughter. There is a phrase that would indicate there may have been others, but we don't know for sure. But she's the only one that is mentioned. There could be other daughters. As the, at this point, as we come to 37, Rachel, uh, Jacob's favored wife, is now uh, some years dead. Her two sons, Joseph and Benjamin, and uh, Leah, the, and of course, remembering Zilpah and Bilhah being the handmaids, the uh, concubines of Jacob, but being essentially treated as wives at this point in the narrative. All right, so we're gaining those bearings, we've come to this last narrative. We're looking at this family, and we come now to the final individual, the final patriarch, and that is Joseph. With that in mind, let's look at verse 2 of Genesis 37. Remembering that verse 1 goes with what precedes. Esau lived outside of the land. Jacob lived in the land. Now we come at verse 2 to this next and final major division. Verse 2, this is the account of Jacob. 
Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. So as you look up here, I, now this is just conjecture on my part, just, just a guess. This isn't, there's no evidence for this at all. But as you look at this, you've got a pastoral family, shepherds, and you've got six sons here. And over here, you've got one, two, three, four, five, six. It's kind of interesting that it says that Joseph is shepherding with the sons of Zilpah and Bilhah, and it kind of makes you wonder that perhaps they're divided in half into two groups of workers. Just the conjecture, just the thought. But he's identified very specifically with these four sons. And as Joseph is working with these four sons, he comes back to his father Jacob with an evil report about them. Now the report we will find out is probably pretty equally applicable to the other six sons, but Joseph apparently in his work here is not as connected with them on this report. Now, we have some very important information here added at verse 3. Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. Now, remember, he's almost the same age as they are, but he is toward the end and the first son of Rachel, and so Joseph takes, uh, Jacob rather, takes specific love in Joseph. And he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. As the Joseph narrative is introduced, we see here in these verses, verses 2 through 11, two fathers and two reports. Joseph reports to Jacob concerning the sins of his brothers, and in this context we learn of the favoritism shown to Joseph by Jacob, and we witness then the anger that favoritism produced in Joseph's brothers. Joseph also reports two dreams. These dreams reveal God's election of Joseph as the next patriarch. And once again, what's the response? The response of the brothers is hatred, animosity toward Joseph. The key of verses 2 through 11 then is that we witness here an intense, envious anger arising against Joseph in the hearts of his brothers due to his favored position. In the first segment, verses 2 through 4, we find sibling anger is generated by Jacob's foolish favoritism of Joseph. Perhaps Jacob put Joseph with these brothers, as I mentioned, 
for uh, work purposes, but at any rate, Joseph is not pleased with how these brothers act, and he lets his father know. Joseph, all we know, there, there's nothing stated here about his motivation. All that we know is that he proves to be, throughout the rest of the book, a responsible young man, a man with character and depth. And so all we can say is that he had a legitimate case and he dutifully tells his father. That does not, of course, endear him to his brothers. Tattling never does. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not, but it's never pleasant. Their anger with him has less to do with that, however, and it has much more to do with what we read in verse 3. Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. Jacob foolishly favors Joseph over his other sons. Jacob knew firsthand. I say foolishly, why? Because Jacob knows firsthand the bitter fruit such favoritism could produce in a family. How often his own resentment must have boiled over toward his father Isaac as he remembered how Isaac favored Esau over him. But Jacob allows that same sin and that same pattern to come into his own experience in life here. He perpetuates the same folly. Jacob displays his singular affection for Joseph. How? He gives him a robe. Men and women wore basic robes in that culture. As we know, the Hebrew word for richly ornamented, however, is not as clear as would be indicated by many of the translations. We really don't have a clue in the world what that word means. They knew, and that's what matters. It may have been richly ornamented. It may have been studded with metal to shine. It may not have been. The, the uh, indication of the word is that it, it comes from an idea meaning to cover the palms and the soles, which would indicate a long-sleeved, long robe. Maybe it was longer. and just at any, it, to, In some way, it was very attractive. And it distinguished Joseph from his brothers. They knew what it looked like, and they hated it. And that's all that really matters to us. We don't really know uh, much about it at all because of the word that is used. But they're angered by this favoritism. And verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they made this comparison, as children do, and they said, Dad loves him more than he loves us. And that troubled them as it would trouble any child. so troubled them that they could not speak a kind word to him. Literally, they could not speak in peace. The Hebrew word shalom. They could not pass their peace on to him. They could not apparently look him in the face like Cain whose face fell in light of his, Abel, in light of his brother Abel's righteousness so they cannot look at Joseph. And so the tension builds. Parental favoritism leads to jealous anger and Joseph's brothers view him with contempt. But things are going to go, as we've read, from bad to worse. But let's stop here for a moment. I think this would be an appropriate place. Let's just consider this moment, this, this place here, or this uh, reference here for just a moment. The idea of parental favoritism is a sin that perpetuates much pain and must be studiously avoided. I think that is clear to us all, yet... For parents, something that we must consider very carefully, and perhaps in your case, something you consider from your own past. Parental favoritism is not righteous. It's not good. Now, I do not think it's humanly possible for parents to be perfectly fair with all of their children. 
to treat every child identically. That's not possible. In some cases, it's probably not even moral. We're not going to treat them fairly all the time. I do not think it's necessarily evil for a parent to find one child more interesting and naturally enjoyable than another. That may be just plain reality in some situations and may not necessarily be wrong. But it is evil for a dad to love one child more than another and to express that love selfishly. And it is evil for a mom to willingly display her unique emotional attachment to one child over the other. Jacob's sin was not that his love for Joseph was too strong. His sin was that his love for his other children was too weak. And we ought to, as parents, be pouring out our love to all of our children, if God has given us any or given us more than one, to be pouring out all of our love to our children, uniquely relating to them as unique individuals, but giving them all of the love that we can give to them, each one. Jacob sinned by putting the emotional joy that he found in expressing his love to Joseph above the best interests of his other children. Now those thoughts may come into our minds as parents. There may be a danger there. There may be a temptation there. Like any lust, like any passion that is evil, it needs to be nipped in the bud. It needs to be stopped in the thoughts of our mind. And it should never be displayed. But in Jacob's life, it was very openly displayed because Jacob is acting here selfishly. So for parents, there is certainly a warning here for us. There is grave danger in parental favoritism, and we must avoid it. And perhaps some of you might suffer from, suffer from parental favoritism. You might really have a sense, honestly, that your parents favored one of your siblings or now more than you first of all a couple words just of encouragement for you first of all don't forget your own depravity it is very possible for us to filter concepts and circumstances and words and ideas selfishly and to read into situations beliefs and thoughts and passions in the hearts of our parents that were never there be very cautious to step carefully here remembering that it is not necessarily immoral for a parent to find greater pleasure or at least greater camaraderie with one child. That is not necessarily evil. So give our, we need to give our parents the benefit of the doubt as far as we can go. We need to remember that we too are depraved and that there is a jealousy and an envy that is very much a hold of our heart as much as the sin of parental favoritism may have influenced our parents. But with that in mind, we turn on. And maybe you know, turn further, and maybe you know it's very clear, and others objectively have noted that you were the object of unfair treatment by one parent or the other. Joseph has something to say for you. Not, in, not that you will identify with him uh, directly, Actually, you'll identify with him in the opposite direction. But this story has much to say to you. It is a matter of trusting God because in the end, it's not our parents' favor that ultimately matters. In the end, it is God's favor that ultimately matters. And if you have suffered that indignity and it causes anger and it causes bitterness, remember that you have a Father in heaven 
who is absolutely just, absolutely righteous, and it is his favor that needs to take up your thoughts. Get your mind out of the gutter, blaming and condemning and looking back with envy and bitterness and focus your attention on your heavenly Father. He will figure things out in the end. He will set things straight. In heaven, the thing that concerns you now in this matter will concern you not at all because he is your heavenly Father and he loves you with an absolute and pure love. So I would offer this word of hope and encouragement to anyone who suffers those kinds of thoughts and concepts. Hope. Put your focus forward, not backward. Move on. Trust God and rest in his love for you. We see in the life of Joseph that, Joseph that sibling anger is generated by Jacob's foolish favoritism of Joseph, but things heat up in the next frame. Sibling anger is fueled also by God's sovereign election of Joseph. Verse 5, Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. This dream of uh, the sheaves of wheat, they would come along and cut down the wheat as it was standing in the field, and they'd bind them together in uh, sheaves, in units that would stand there. And in this crazy dream that he has, this strange situation, they all kind of gather around him, all of their sheaves, and bow down to him, to his sheaves. As he shares that dream with his brothers, it just excites all of the envy, the jealousy that is in their heart, and they hate him all the more. Now, what do we make of this dream Remember, we are in a setting that is prior to written revelation. God used various means to communicate truth to his people in this situation. First of all, we might think of most naturally what is called theophany. That is, God appears. Remember that in the life of Abraham. Abraham is there at his tent one day and God comes. God and two angels with him show up at his tent and they talk with him. This is not something that uh, takes place normally, but it is something that can take place. God can take on human form, and he can speak to individuals, theophany. Secondly, God would communicate with his people with his voice. He would speak to them. God has always spoken with his people. Right from the Garden of Eden, we have theophany and voice both, I guess, all in one, as God walks with Adam and Eve in the garden. But as time passes, there's times when he uses one of these means. He shows up and speaks, or there's a voice from heaven. That's no visual, but a voice that's heard. As time passes in the text of Genesis, we see the development of God's speaking, or, or rather of God communicating his truth by means of dreams and visions. Now these dreams are not like our dreams. There does not seem to be much debate, if any at all. Matter of fact, this is about the most debated place in all of the Bible that a dream is really a message from God. So I, I don't know how they determined that, but to some degree they knew in the dreams that this dream came from God. This was a unique dream. This wasn't like a normal dream, like a dream that I dealt with last night. <laughs> there was, uh, one of our sons is, uh, was suffering a little in the middle of the night, and I had a fever a little bit, and, and he uh, said to me that uh, my brothers won't let me sleep. 
they're shooting guns and they're making fire in the room and I can't sleep. His brothers are both sawn logs, you know, right next to him. Now, it's just a crazy dream that makes no sense. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know what it means. It has, has no sense. There might be some carryover from the day that led to that. I don't know, but <laughs> we, we might need to investigate that. But you know what I mean. You, 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 you have a dream like that, and you might even say, ah, oh, yeah, I see where that came from. I was kind of thinking about that thing. But it means nothing. There's really nothing to it. These dreams, there was something to them, and everyone knew it. There was no doubt it was from God, and they recognized it. We've seen several of these kinds of dreams. The dream that Jacob received as he was heading off to Padan Aram. God made clear to Jacob that he would care for him. Remember, he saw the vision of the steps into heaven and the angels ascending and descending. We've seen the dream of Laban where God says to Laban, don't lay a hand on Jacob. Let him go back to the land. So there are these dreams that are unique as God communicates truth to his people. Now the content of this dream is such that it really, there's really no difficulty in interpreting it. In fact, if, if Joseph had come to you and given you this dream, you would know right off the bat pretty much what it meant. Everybody knew what was, being, what was intended here. The key to this dream, though, and here's where we need to connect with This isn't just a story about a dream. There's something very important going on here. And that is that God is establishing here at the beginning of the Joseph narrative that God is in control. There is a, essentially a promise here to Joseph that God will bring out. God knows the future. He knows what will happen. He knows where he is taking Joseph. And he makes clear to Joseph, to all of his siblings, and to his father what is going to happen. He also, in a very unique way, makes his sovereignty known here. Remember Isaac? Isaac favored which of his two sons? He favored Esau. Which of those two sons does God choose? He chooses Jacob. It has nothing to do with what Isaac wants. It has to do with the choice of God. Now, you might start to think, as you read the text there, that, well, God's just kind of an ornery God. And whoever the father chooses, he chooses the other guy. Not the case here, is it? Here, God chooses the, the favored son. He chooses Joseph, again displaying his sovereign hand. And to this point, Reuben, as you look down the line here, Reuben has been disqualified because of his attempt, we, as, as I understood it, his attempt to take over the family as he slept with uh, Jacob's uh, concubine. There, Simeon and Levi have been disqualified because of that uh, debacle at Shechem. And so the jury is out as to whom will be chosen as the firstborn. Not firstborn in time, that's Reuben, but the firstborn as far as the right of the firstborn, the birthright. Who will receive that? We know that God has chosen that individual. No matter what Isaac did to choose Esau, God had chosen Jacob. And it was Jacob that was chosen to have the birthright, the blessing, to gain the blessing from God. Here as well, we know that God has a purpose and he goes on record to make that purpose clear that Joseph will lead his family. We will also note the rise of Judah, the next in line of Rachel's sons, but more on that later. How do these brothers respond to God's revelation? That's really what's at issue here. How do they respond to it? They blame their brother. 
for their father's favoritism. Now they blame their brother for God's election. Now I suppose to some degree that they're not really sure what is going on. They're not really sure if Jacob is making this up. I suppose that's a possibility. But they are really, in fact, rather than seeking the mind of God and seeking what God intends to do with Joseph, they are drawing a conclusion. And really, they're not even bothered with a conclusion. They just hate this brother with intensity. And so, verse 8, his brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule over us? They hated him all the more because of the dream and what he had said. The audacity... Their anger is, of course, very irrational. What had Joseph done? Perhaps they think he's lying, though they don't accuse him of that, so it doesn't seem to be what's on their mind. But had, what had Joseph done? He had just had a dream. But Joseph is so convinced it will happen, they cannot dismiss it as meaningless, and they vent their anger against him. It's foolish. What they should be doing is asking God what he intends and what is in all of this. But they, as the phrase goes, kick against the goads. They fight against God. Joseph has another dream in verse 9. In this one, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars are bowing down to him. And you have to ask at this point in the text as you read this, is Joseph just plain stupid? Why, why fuel, throw fuel on the fire? They're already angry with him, and now he comes with a second. Perhaps there is a degree of pride in his heart. And there, there's some subtle indications that there's a potential there. The way that the, the phrases, some of the phrases in the original text are laid out here as far as the response of the brothers. But we really don't know much of what's in Joseph's heart. All we know is he's communicating the truth of God. Perhaps he hopes that this second dream will finally convince them. Maybe he doesn't deliver it with the greatest demeanor we don't know about that but what he does do is he delivers the divine message he speaks the truth the sovereign god has sent a divine message saying that joseph's brothers will bow down to him he doesn't know what that means i don't get the picture i did, i just can't bring myself to this that joseph is coming to them with this story and saying hey guys here's the dream come on hit the ground i'm ready here i am you know it's time to bow down to me i don't think that's I don't get that idea at all I just get the idea he's communicating what God has said he's communicating the dream he's just letting them know the facts certainly he hopes to convince them because he's very sure of this dream but his brothers once again ignore the divine message and turn their rebellion against the spokesman really foreshadow in a sense the prophets of Israel who were received with bitterness and anger by the people of Israel. In verses 10 and 11, we find that this confusion and, and to some degree even uh, anger here displayed also by his father. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? Rachel is, of course, long dead at this point, so probably Bilhah has assumed motherly responsibilities for Joseph. That's probably what he intends. Matter of fact, if the chronology is right, uh, the indication would be that Rachel's 10 years dead already at this point when this takes place, when Joseph is 17. Um, 
that, that, that is, uh, is accurate. I don't mean to indicate there that we're not sure about that, but as we, pl as we work out the chronology, he, uh, she's been dead for 10 years, so probably his mother is now understood to be seen as Bilhah, and that's the one who is intended here. Jacob is also upset, though, with Joseph's dream. This might indicate that Joseph delivered the message with a measure of pride, perhaps, because Jacob's on his side, right? He does not impress his father with a spirit of broken sincerity at any rate. Jacob is also angry. But Jacob does not dismiss the dreams. His sons are so blinded by envious rage they cannot even consider the message. But Jacob loves Joseph. And he stores the memory of these very strange dreams. Though he does not approve, he will wait to see what happens. Let's stop for a few moments as we consider what we've looked at here to this point. We see here very obviously jealousy. A jealousy that will explode as the text unfolds. We are reminded as we look at these individuals, as we look at the sons of Joseph, of Jacob rather, that sinful jealousy is futile and it is destructive. It is futile because it is God who makes us to differ and sets the course of our lives. Jealousy foolishly rages against a person when our grump is really with God. Jealousy accomplishes nothing. Envy is futile. It is destructive because attacks against God and His plan do not end well. All kinds of trouble await Joseph's brothers. And so we cannot read a text like this and allow the Spirit of God to use it without asking the question, am I jealous? Am I envious? of some individual. Are you struggling with such sin today? Remember, focus on this idea. My problem is not really with that person. My problem is really with God's will. We need to consider that very carefully and come to God with our prayers of repentance, if that is appropriate. Jealousy. We find in this narrative as well the emphasis of opposition. This, op this jealousy turns into opposition, and that will be more the case as the text develops. When God chooses to use an individual for His unique purposes, there will inevitably be some who rise up in opposition. Serving God produces enemies. And Joseph experiences that. And if there is any element of that in your life, Joseph is a great hero and a man to watch as God gives us opportunity together in the weeks ahead. And as we speak of God, we speak of, in this text, of course, divine choice, sovereign election. It's an interesting turn in providence here as Isaac, as Jacob's favored son is chosen, as I mentioned earlier, but the emphasis here is on God's sovereign choice. He sees Joseph as the man that he desires, and through Joseph, he is going to change this entire family. We see the providence of God at work. Joseph chosen for leadership, but the animosity of his brothers will lead him first to suffer long before the fulfillment of these dreams. And I see here again, we must, we must consider this pattern in the pages of Scripture. You see the parallel? We mentioned it uh, some months back. Paul, you're going to go to Rome. How does he get there? Months and months of tough sailing, literally. 
his ship ending in the drink, swimming for his life, bitten by a snake, using his wits and his strength and all of his energies to get to Rome. If your view of providence is that God knows all things and ordains all things, you're on the right page. If your view of providence is then we sit back and just watch while he moves our body like a chess piece, you've got it all wrong. Paul, you're going to stand in Rome. That was a tough, tough road. And Paul used every ounce of energy and wit to get there. Joseph, your brothers are going to bow before you. But the road there is not easy. God does not just move people around like chess pieces in his sovereign will. He uses the sinful choices of people. God does not sin. He's not the author of it. He doesn't bring it about. But he wills that it be. And he uses sin and wickedness to accomplish this prophetic dream, these prophetic dreams. The providence of God we must see through all of these pages. And so as we look through, as we continue on in the book of Genesis, the stage is set. God has chosen the next patriarch, but his brothers are angry enough to kill him. Jealousy, anger, frustration, parental favoritism, sibling rivalry. How do they play into God's plan? All of these things are very much alive in Jacob's family, and this toxic potion is soon to explode. But it will explode in the direction that God intends. And the key to Genesis, as from this book, this seedling sprouts the entire Bible, is that continuing theme that God is sovereign. He is in charge. And the rest of the narrative will be an outplay of providence, as one commentator put it, so that everything will happen at just the right time. It always does. It always does in the midst of all the fury and the difficulty and the sin and the trial. It happens at just the right time in God's plan. That God is going to make Joseph. And he is going to make and improve and grow and develop Jacob through what lies ahead. And there is a tremendous transformation that will take place even in the lives of Joseph's hateful brothers. There's a transformation because God's at work as he always is to change his people despite their sin and even working through their sin. Let's bow for a word of prayer together. Our Father, there may be, as we consider these words, a battle of jealousy that some are facing. We all face jealousy. There's envy that is inherent to us. But I pray that we would be strengthened in our spirit in faithful dependence upon Your grace that we would sever the root of jealousy and bitterness and envy. That we would realize that any such sin really has its roots in a denial of your sovereign plan and grace. 
Lord, there may be the sin of parental favoritism, of sibling rivalry within our assembly here today. We know that there, there undoubtedly is, as these sins also cling to us. But I pray that you'll deliver us from them, that you'll allow us to love with a pure love as you have loved us through Christ. That we would so love our children. Lord, for anyone who suffers wounds from past wrongs, I pray, dear God, that you would give them a new vision of hope, a sense of your undying, untainted parental love. That they would rest in it and rejoice in it. And whatever mom or dad has done in the past that has hurt them, that they would move beyond and look forward and not backward. That they'd leave the sin in your hands, allowing vengeance to belong to you, and that they would place their hope and their joy in their home in which they will live throughout all eternity. If there is anyone here that is kicking against the goads, who is kicking against your plan, perhaps someone who knows you not as Savior and Lord, I pray, dear God, that you will, even in these moments, that the Spirit of God would move and work and draw and enlighten and do what only you can do. Allow them, God, to see the truth that they might reach for it and grasp it and receive it as your children. This is our prayer and our cry. Purify us, Lord, as we consider these truths and purify us as we have opportunity to continue studying the life of Joseph and the suffering that he endured and the God who led him all the way. May we put down deep roots of faith as we consider these truths in your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.